We're going to start looking at the consecrated life, and we are looking at the first part today, and I've entitled this talk, Set Apart in an Age of Moral Anarchy. Now that's a title. <laughs> that's a title. So I want to invite you to stand, and today we're going to read our scripture for the day from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through to 20. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true. Though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. So don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. This is the word of God for us today. Grab a seat. Thank you. We're going to have a good look at that passage in a few minutes. But let me just get started with a few thoughts to frame us up with where we're going today. Now, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the great teachings of Jesus, there is a phrase that Jesus uses. It's something like this. Um, don't be worried or anxious about anything. Don't be worried or anxious about anything. And, and I just want to be honest with you all for a moment. Uh, I live every day in a worry and an anxiety of something. Uh, and, and it's this, I've put words to it. My anxiety, my worry is this, what if I'm not right? Every day at some point, seeing something or hearing something or talking about something, whether it's certain news stories that are coming up, whether it's an agenda of someone who's talking to me, whether it's a cultural symbol that I see, I find myself asking this question, I'm not sure if that's right, or maybe I'm not right. Am I right? Who's right? And this question is not just a cognitive thought for me. It's not just up here in my mind. It actually, in more recent years, I've started to feel it in my body. It actually causes a level of anxiety. It makes my stomach knot up a little bit. And in certain spheres, it actually makes my stomach completely drop. <laughs> It makes me uncomfortable, it makes me nervous, it makes me unsettled, it makes me uncertain, it makes me lose sleep. My body is reacting to this question and what's most frustrating is that sometimes I struggle to find an answer and maybe I'm just completely alone in that, but, but I suspect I'm not. So today I, I want to ask, 
Can we change that story to live knowing that something is right? Not just in our minds, but that we might be able to live it with our whole beings. Can we actually be the people that Jesus spoke of? Those who aren't anxious and those who do not worry. Is that possible? Can we become those people? Can we know deep down in our bodies, deep down in our souls, deep down in our most inner place, what is right? Can we answer this question? So to try, today I want to talk about a couple of things in this first talk of the consecrated life. Today I want to talk about the world we're living in. I want to talk about our modern struggle to believe that God is transcendent. I want to talk about what holiness is in this moment of time. And finally, I want to offer a couple of practices to start the journey as we start to look at this for a couple of weeks. So before we go on to that, I just want to pray because I'm suddenly aware that we're kind of sitting in a bit of a big moment today. So let's pray together and I want to bless you as we begin. Lord, I, I believe that today you want to do your redeeming and your healing work in each of us. Lord, I believe that you want to fulfill that anxiety-free, that worry-free vision that you promised. You want to give it to us and you want to make that part of our lives. So Lord, come. Spirit of God, come in power right now as we sit together. And Lord, ease the knots that might be in our stomachs and take weight off our shoulders and ease the tension that might be in our bodies. Lord, come in mercy and come in power. Come and work in our lives today, God. Come and make things right in us. Holy Spirit, come and recalibrate our lives again, we pray. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit and in the love of the Father. Amen. Okay, let's get going. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Uh, In other translations, it puts it, um, you know, don't copy the patterns of this world. We need to talk about the world for a moment as we start thinking about the consecrated life. Uh, John Mark Comer, he says this in Live No Lies, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. When I read that, that last part really caught my attention. I underlined it there for you today. The redefinition of good and evil. Now, John Mark Comer is pretty smart and he's pretty savvy. He's pretty culturally turned on. And it doesn't actually take a cultural genius like him, I think, to be able to look at the world today and to be able to look at the buzz of what the world is doing and to not come to some sort of uh, same conclusion that there is a massive redefinition going on at the moment. And that redefinition is resulting in some sort of form of moral anarchy. Moral anarchy. Now, by moral, what am I saying? By moral, I'm saying the principles of good and evil, of what is right and what is wrong. So gritting it all up and saying this fits here and this fits here, that is what morals would be. Now, by anarchy, what do I mean? By anarchy, I mean a state of disorder. I mean um, this absence of an authority, uh, an absence of, of, of a 
of a recognition to say that is right and that is wrong. It's missing. So across our cultural landscape at the moment, our principles of what is right and what is wrong are currently in disorder due to this absence of a non-recognition of authority. So, so for example, we, we have the political spaces that we live our lives in every day. Uh, often they're hung up as sort of left and right, aren't they? You've got the left, you've got the right. You've got these political pictures and you've got their agendas. You've got these political ideologies on either side. And what's actually happened is that these ideas have become more than just ideas. They've actually become new religions, What's actually going on at the moment is there's these tribes that have formed around some of the ideas on the left or the right, and there's actually this polarity that's formed, and there's this turf war that's going on, and it's called the culture wars. Literally, war has been called across the divide. Uh, we've got topics that get kind of placed on the table, and the left and the right duke it out. You know, sexuality, boom. power, boom. crime control, boom. gender, Vaccines, colonization, legalizing pot, land, spending, on and on and on we go. Throw a topic on there and the left and the right are going to look at this differently, aren't they? Hot topics filling our news feeds as they kind of duke it out. The more progressive amongst us, the more progressive amongst the world, they push aggressively forward. And the traditionalist amongst us, the traditionalists in the world kind of, they aggressively want to keep the turf what it is. They want to hold the ground. They want to defend and hold back. It's a war, and it's a war that rages on every single day. And like every war, it has propaganda. It has slogans. Like a war, it has symbols to rally the troops. Like a war, it has weapons that are being used every day, flung across the lines to try and take hits. And the problem with war, as we're seeing with the Ukraine at the moment, is war is a grind. It's a grind and you get disorientated in amongst the grind. What is right? What is wrong? Who, whose ideas are the right ones? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And so here comes the anxiety sometimes. Who's winning? Who will win? I don't know. This is the disorienting nature of the culture war. And if that's not complicated enough, there's something even closer to home that you might recognize. If that's all a bit too abstract, let me bring it closer to something I know that will make a bit more sense. In this postmodern and post-Christian world that we live in, there are cultural slogans that we are using every day. We say to ourselves things like this, you do you. You do you, boo. We say to each other, hey, Live your truth. Live your truth. We say to each other things like, hey, follow your heart. Is that working, Sana? Can you get that to work for me? Follow your heart. Caveat, though, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, follow your heart. Now, you do you, live your truth, follow your heart. These all sound good, don't they? They sound like good slogans. They sound good at first, but actually, they're incredibly deceptive. Because they are cultural slogans that state, ultimately, everything true will only ever be found amongst you and yourself. Nothing external needs to be said. Nothing external needs to be taken in. You've got it all inside of you. 
Uh, I heard John Mark Comer share a bit of wisdom about that last slogan, follow your heart. He said this, this one is a doozy. The problem with the follow your heart slogan is that it assumes that your heart is an accurate barometer to the good life and that it is trustworthy. It doesn't assume that the heart is a mixed bag of good desires of image bearing to God, but also evil ones. That it's not full of contradictory and complex desires that live in a warped hierarchy and ecosystem. That it's not warped by sin and the enemy and also by advertising, marketing and politicians. How can we trust our heart? The heart is incredibly powerful, yes, but can we really be sure that we know that what is in our hearts is good? And that last piece of the slogan, next slide there, Sana, um, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else? Well, 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 again, there's a big problem with that. It assumes that we have an all agreed position on what is right and what is wrong. What is good and evil? Well, one person's idea can be very different to another person's, can't it? So if we're not even agreeing, we're not going to agree on that last part at all. So all this to say, we are incredibly lost at sea at the moment as we ask this important question in our culture, what is good and what is evil? But there's actually a bigger question going on, and this is the question I want to plug you in today. The bigger question is, and who decides? Who's deciding it? All right, everyone, just take a deep breath. <sighs> That's my big ramp up for the morning. We've got to the top of the roller coaster. It's going to start coming down now. It's a bit heavy, but let me start putting this back together. There's one really big symptom that is a huge problem that we're living with at the moment. Next slide. We are living in the erosion of transcendent truth. We're living in the erosion of transcendent truth. Truth. Transcendence means something beyond, something above this range of normal uh, physical human experience that we can have. Uh, the Bible actually tells us that God is a God of transcendence. So let's go to this next scripture in Isaiah 55. You, you'll probably know this one if you've read your Bible. Um, God says this in Isaiah, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In this scripture, next slide, God is saying He is transcendent. He is higher, greater, more than what humanity can know. Humanity has limitations. We have boundaries. God transcends those boundaries and those human limitations. God's thoughts are higher than humanity's thoughts. His ways are higher than humanity's ways because he is outside and he can, uh, of the confines that humanity can experience these things in the created order. He is the creator. We are the created but honestly, most Western and sophisticated, educated and savvy people struggle to believe that. They probably don't believe that about God anymore. You know, for the last 500 years especially, we've had philosophers who have brought us philosophically closer into ourselves. We've had scientists who have explained away some of the great mysteries that humankind used to live with. The world has become globalized and connected at such a different level. Technology has become automated and, and is finishing stuff for us. 
the less we have, the more we have all of those things playing a part, the less we can actually believe that God is higher than our ways and has thoughts higher than our thoughts. Now, none of those things in themselves are bad by themselves. I'm not trying to villainize those things, there's the problem. But each of those things has a shadow side, a shadow side that is outworking and eroding our need to look to God for transcendence. We don't need to look for an external authority. These things have contributed and chipped away at those markers that we used to be so enthralled by as human beings. What is mystery? What is beauty? What is goodness? What is right? What is wrong? Well, we've become self-defining people and we're capable of finding the answers ourselves. We look to our surroundings, we figure it out. Our next slide, we, we have traded transcendent truth for relative truth. You know, rather than pining, uh, sorry, rather than pinning truth to an external authority like God, the zeitgeist of our culture has become just get more comfortable and content with defining your own truth for how each person sees it and each situation that they are in and how they would like to do so. You have your truth, I have mine. There's no absolutes, there's only perspectives. You do you. You be your truth. You define it. And the more we swim in that cultural water every day, the easier it becomes to ask if God actually is higher than our ways with thoughts greater than our thoughts. But none of this problem is new. Next slide. I want you to picture Adam and Eve in that opening story of the scripture. Adam and Eve standing in front of the tree of good and evil. And they're being asked that confronting question by the snake, aren't they? Um, so who said you're not meant to eat this? Who said you're not meant to eat of that tree? And at the center of the fall is that question. The question that asks, so who says that what's right is right? Who says what's wrong is wrong? And at that fall, we have not just the fall of humanity, but the fall of our hearts. So how do we start to put our hearts back on track? Well, this is where I want to introduce you to the thought that in the biblical scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, they tell us often and over and over again that God is holy. God is holy. Now, holy is a word that speaks of this transcendence. It speaks of the fact that God is above or opposite to. God is, um, is over. There's an otherness. It's the most repeated command in the scriptures is, is be holy because I, the Lord God, am holy. But what does holy actually mean? Uh, next slide here. The word holy, if we actually define it, in the Hebrew it's kadosh, and in Greek it's uh, hagios, but it's actually, it's actually hag, the H-A-G, and there's a bunch of other words uh, that are made with other letters. <laughs> Funny that, that's how words work. Um, but what it means is, um, it means to be set apart. It means different from. It means distinct, it means sacred, it means purity, it means otherness. It means consecrated, something that is consecrated. And that's why we've called this part of the series the consecrated life, the holy life, the consecrated life. Holy is a word that speaks of this otherness, which is why ultimately it becomes a word that's tied to this idea of the priesthood of Israel. It speaks into the calling of those people. 
that they were to be consecrated people doing consecrated things. It's interesting in the Old Testament, as God is setting up his temple, his tabernacle, he calls pots and pans, holy pots and pans. They're not any more special, they're just set apart. They're consecrated for a different use. So we've got holy pots and pans, we've got a holy building, we've got holy people. Why? Because they've been set apart. There's an otherness, there's a consecration to them. Uh, That scripture that I started with from Romans 12, it sits in the same idea. Be people who are different amongst a culture. This is your true worship. Now, holiness holiness was a was a certain uh, it was for a certain time and a certain moment of history, a certain place and a certain people. It was to be the different ones amongst those things. It was to be set apart. You could even say it was to be weird. It was to be the weird ones. Uh, it was to be the distinct ones. Ultimately, it was this whole idea of being consecrated amongst something different, amongst something doing different things, amongst something looking different behaving differently. And it's in all of that that I now want to bring you back up to the reading from today. I want to bring you back to 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, where we started right at the start. And I just want to say, you know, in this scripture, Paul is calling the Corinthian church to holiness. He's calling them to be these consecrated people. So let's just have a look at each piece. I'm just going to unpack a little bit of this as we go. In verse 12, Paul quotes them saying, I, you say I'm allowed to do anything. So either they've written this to him or he's heard them saying it. He's quoting them back to it. It's in quote marks. So he's saying, you are saying to me that you're allowed to do anything. And Paul says, yes, you actually can do whatever you want because as those who are living under the grace of Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish law does not bind you. That is the radical nature of grace. Our actions, no matter how extreme, no longer separate us from the love of God. But, he points out, but not everything is beneficial or helpful. If you truly grasp what God has done for you, you will realize that some forms of travel in this life are not helpful or beneficial. Another way to say that, um, some ways are not actually as they are have been designed. Some ways are doing things that break the covenant that God has made with us. Some ways are outside of the vision of human flourishing and thriving and goodness. Some of them are sin. Some of them are brokenness. And Paul repeats himself again, saying the same cultural slogan, I'm allowed to do anything, but then he works it with another little angle of the answer. Can you see that at the end? He says, I must not be a slave to anything. You know, we aren't meant to be ruled by anything other than Jesus Christ as our king, as we sang this morning. You're either my king of all, or you're not my king at all. What a line to have sung together today. We aren't meant to be ruled by anything other than Jesus. We are not meant to be ruled by our sexuality, as Paul is saying here. We aren't meant to be identified by that in a way that's like unhealthy. We aren't meant to be under it. We we aren't meant to be a slave to it. We are meant to control and steward it. I mean, ask anyone who has felt the shift in that dynamic, whether it's with sexuality or another thing, ask anyone who has come under the rule of that thing. And and the stories are often the same, aren't they? 
I lost control. I lost control. I've lost control of that thing. I've lost control of it. It, it. it now rules me. And so here, Paul is pointing to the topic of sexuality. He's saying we are to be sexually sober. We are to not be slaves to it, but we instead, we are meant to be the ones stewarding it and celebrating it correctly. This idea here is attached to sexuality, but elsewhere around um, consumption and behavior, he uses this in 1 Thessalonians. Next slide there for me. Uh, it is God's will, you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy, there it is again, and honorable. We should learn to control our bodies that they are holy and honorable. Next up in verse 13, next slide there, Sana, um, we see Paul now open up his argument. He says like this, like food is for the stomach, so sex is for pleasure. Now here, this argument here is actually a cultural slogan. He's actually just pulled it straight out of culture. It's kind of like saying, huh, it is what it is. That's just what sex is. It's just for pleasure. You know, it, it's obviously right in a way. It is for pleasure, but sex is not Actually, it's, it's not getting smaller in Paul's vision. Actually, it's this exchange of something even greater. It is not just utilitarian for pleasure. It's actually got something bigger going on. And so it's not to be sort of squandered with prostitutes, says Paul, because actually you're not to engage in sex like the culture does. No, again, so Paul here is not letting it get bottled down smaller. He's not letting it kind of get like it's just diminishing. Actually, what Paul is doing is he casts a vision and his vision is huge. His vision is, next slide, God loves your body. And sex is not just an act for our bodies, it's the fusion of two souls, he says. You become one body. He's trying to really sort of open this thing up and say, look at actually how glorious this is. Um, he reminds them, next slide, do you not remember, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is this temple of God. And so he just says, honour God with your body. Paul is placing sex into this grand, big story, an anthropological vision of what it is to be human. And he's asking us, if you are truly this kind of human being where this is possible, one that is joined to Christ, one that divinely shares with another, and one that is a container of God's presence in the world, then must you not honour your body by taking all of these things seriously? All of this to say... Paul's view of the body and of sex in this, in this piece of the text is not low and it's not grubby. It is this high vision. It's a vision to see and to live towards. You know, to Paul, holiness is not restriction and, and dead religion. Holiness is actually to live another way into the world. And our bodies are for living out that distinct otherness into our culture. The way of Jesus lived amongst the world we find ourselves in. So just to summarize what's going on here, our culture says, hey, we can do whatever we want. Paul's answer is no. Not everything you do is going to be good for you. And then to frame up his answer, he has this vision which contains an incredibly high view of the body 
Your body is set apart for being holy. Sin affects your body. And in this section of the text, he's pointing out uh, sexual sin as the culture, uh, as his marker. Elsewhere in Corinthians, he's going to use different arguments, but in this one, it was, it was around sexual sin. And then he just has this final thing. So honor God with your body. So, so here's the thing. The, the early church took this vision because these letters are to the early church. And this high view of the body, next slide, and they actually, they actually lived this courageous call to honor God with it. And amazing things happened. They started a countercultural sexual ethic. It became a way to be recognized in culture as a Christian that your marriage was one of covenant and commitment, not just casual sex. It became part of the groundwork for human rights. It started things like the idea of consent. They, they took this cultural practice of the day of infanticide where they would, after a baby was born, if it was unwanted, they would just leave it out on the street. And actually what the early Christians started to do is they would pick up those infants and they would start to adopt them as their own. The formation of the first orphanages. You see, this idea of a high view of the body played out into actions that turned the Greco-Roman world upside down and inside out. This consecrated body has gone on to produce great fruits of love and dignity and justice into human history. But before we do that, before we start talking about how we go about that, we need to start somewhere else first. Because holiness doesn't just arrive in our lives because we try harder. Holiness flows out of a divinely transformed heart. You know, to live into this vision of a holiness, it's, it's, it's not just about trying harder. Something needs to have happened internally for us. We need to be divinely transformed. You know, we started today by looking at how our culture sees our hearts as this navigation compass right? And so this moment is about being honest and just asking a good question today. So how's the navigation going? What's it actually doing? Uh, Richard Foster in his book, Streams of Living Water, says this, a divinely transformed heart by its very nature will produce right action. It simply cannot do otherwise. Purity of heart is the fountainhead of all right action. Holiness is loving unity with God. It is a growing, maturing, freely given conformity to the will and ways of God. In holiness, we become the persons that we were created to be. It reminds me of the psalmist. Next slide. In Psalm 51, you'll probably recognize this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. These are words... I just think these are words that our culture doesn't want to hear. Our hearts don't need cleaning. They're fine the way they are. We can follow our hearts as the great God of truth. But, oh, this is a lie. This is a lie. It's actually just a delusional, hedonistic dream. The hedonistic way, the hedonistic pursuit is to just do what feels good. 
Those are the markers of hedonism. Pursue pleasure at all costs. And we just have to realize today, here in this moment, Central Vineyard, to be a follower of Jesus is not to be called to the hedonistic way. It's a call to the transcendent way. This transcendence is our marker. We come to God and we confess and we say, our hearts are not as good as I think it is. The transcendence way is to, is to say that beauty and goodness and truth, that, that they have come through the making of and the gifting of God as the creator. It's first and foremost found in him. The transcendent way is to ask for our heart to be transformed, not, not just by trying harder, but by coming to him humbly. Coming to him as the one who can mend it and putting our trust to him. Saying, heal it, restore it, have your way. You know, all this to say, the transcendent way is this holiness that flows out of humility. And to experience humility, we must become people of confession and repentance. These are our practices today. You know, I just want to say first and foremost that in Romans 2 verse 4, it says this beautiful words, you know, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That's the framework here. God's not shaming us. God's not shaming you. There's no shame in this exchange today. God's kindness is drawing us towards this vision that he has for us. But when there are unholy things that we need to sort out, there are two practices to do the business. And they are this, confession and repentance. You know, confession, confession is to, um, to put to words what is currently invisible or hidden. It's to put to words what has been kept in the shadows. It's to speak what might only be internal and to bring it that it might come to light. And repentance, repentance is to turn. Repentance is to say, I was traveling one way, maybe where I'm the king, and I've heard the call, the gospel that says, actually, the good news is that the kingdom of God has come, turn and see, and I'm turning to that reality. I'm turning my life to follow the way of Jesus rather than the way of self or the way of culture. I'm turning to his way. So confession and repentance sort of do this dance, and they are the on-ramps, the beginning points for starting to practice heart change. You know, it's through confession and it's through repentance that we choose to lean on transcendent truth rather than just on our own. It's through confession and repentance that we're able to say, God, you are higher than my thoughts. You are higher than my ways. I trust you rather than myself. It's confession and repentance that help us to say, my heart is not as trustworthy as I think, God. It's confession and repentance that means we can say, you know, God, I have not honored you with my body. I have not honored you with my lips. I have not honored you with my actions. I have not honored you with my inaction or whatever. Insert something in there. I am, I am so sorry. It's confession and repentance that means we can come to the one who is holy 
And who, the one who is holy then in his love that is transcendental above all of the experiences of love that any of us have ever had, whose, whose measurements for love are beyond the boundaries we can even establish, and whose kindness and mercy and compassion for us are exactly the same, this holy God forgives us and then he calls us holy. He says, be holy because I am holy. The set-apart God then sets you apart. The set-apart God sets you apart. The set-apart God sets you apart. That's what it is to be holy. And it's through confession and repentance that we start this journey. We stand amongst this age of moral anarchy full of so many questions about what is right, what is wrong, and all that's going on amongst the culture wars of this moment. And we stand and say, from confession and repentance, I am choosing a different way, the set-apart one, the God who said in Isaiah, he is above it all. He is who I'm choosing. There is no other way. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look further into this life, the consecrated life. We're going to look a little bit further into this idea of holiness. Um, we're going to start next week by looking at Jesus' vision for it. So we're going to look at the life of Jesus and what Jesus' idea of holiness was and his consecrated life. And then after that, we're going to talk about how we can practice it a little bit more as well. But, but we cannot start the journey without crossing this little threshold we find ourselves in today. Uh, we need to become people of confession and repentance. And I want to help you to do that today, safely and well. Um, what I've done, if you can go to the, the communion slides, please, Sana, and um, just flick through about four slides. So you'll recognize all of this, guys. Like, this is pretty familiar. But I've written for us um, some new slides, some new liturgy to say together as we come to the table today. So we're going to come to the table in a moment, but I'm just giving you a little heads up as to what it involves. So once you've got your elements and you're back in your seat, we're going to pray this confession prayer together. And it just says this, Almighty and merciful God, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved others as our Savior Christ loves us. You have, we have chosen other ways than yours, and we are truly sorry. And then, and then what we're going to do is, just with those elements in your hand, I'm just going to allow you a, a moment of silence just to consider what those things might be, to think about those things. Uh, then next slide, uh, then I'm going to say an absolution over you, uh, just a, a, a statement of actually of truth, uh, that God is full of unfailing love and kindness, he's gracious and compassionate, he's good to all, he forgives all who truly repent, so may, you, may he forgive your sins. And then we're going to say one last prayer together, this last one, the response together is going to be, in your mercy God, forgive what we have been, help us to amend what we are, and direct what we shall be that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways through Jesus Christ our Savior by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you see the sort of sense here of like what we've done, but also who we are and what we're going to do? Like there's a sort of little dynamic there. Um, but what I've just tried to do is we've added this in for this little season here is to go, let's practice this together. Let's kind of take a little bit of the stigma off it and let's actually try and practice this wholeheartedly together today. And so um, Nick and Donald, I don't know if you guys are still around. You are cool. I thought we might just sort of back up. Can we back up to the start of the communion slide there, Sana? Thank you. All right, so you all know where we're going. I've let the, the secret out now. But I wanted you to know what the words were going to be so that you didn't kind of get surprised by some of that. Okay. So ear to and stand. This is our last act together today, these last few moments.
let me have the um, scripture here. First Corinthians 11. Now let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. I, as Paul, received my instructions from the Master himself and I passed them on to you. The Master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, he took bread, having given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood. It's my new covenant with you. So each time you drink this cup, remember me. And what you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and your actions the death of the master. And you'll be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. And you must never let familiarity breed contempt. So this is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. And it's made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time or ever before. You who have tried to follow Jesus and all of us who have failed. Come, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, not because the church invites you. It is Christ who invites you to be known and fed here. So come, come and grab your elements, head back to your, ta- uh, to your chair and, and maybe just stay standing. Just let's stand together as we do this today. God who is transcendent is the God who as Isaiah says my ways are higher than your ways my thoughts are higher than your thoughts God that is your holiness you are you're above and beyond and other and yet the mystery the great mystery of our faith is that you became known as Christ came known as the incarnate God you've shown us a way you've made a way you've empowered a way and you invite us onto this way and so today Lord we humbly choose to come and to confess and to state that we want to be on your way you're either the king of all or you're not our king at all that is true, Lord. So I want to invite you to say this prayer together. Here we go. Almighty and merciful God, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved others as our Savior Christ loves us.
we have chosen other ways than yours. And we are truly sorry. So just reflect for a moment what those ways are for you. Remember, confession is to put words to them. So just, just quietly, it doesn't have to be a big public thing, but just quietly, just, just put words to those things. Where has something else had the love of your heart in a way that it shouldn't have? Where did you not act as the person of Christ in a situation? What other ways are you walking and traveling on that are not the ways of Jesus? Almighty God, who is full of unfailing love and kindness, who is gracious and compassionate, who is good to all and who forgives all who truly repent. May you forgive us our sins, strengthen us by the Holy Spirit and keep us in life eternal through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. I want to invite you to take of your communion after we say this Amen. So let's say it together. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's eat and let's drink.